Smartcast. You are listening to a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Welcome to the Investor Hour podcast. I'm your host Rahul Goel. The goal of this podcast is to learn from the best investment minds of our times. We want to learn their backstory, essentially what makes them them. We want to learn how they make their decisions in their personal lives. And of course, we want to learn about their core principles of investing. Essentially, a lot of learning that could help you make better decisions in life and investing. Harsha Upadhyay is a big believer in the India story, and he believes the way to go about making the most of it as an investor is to pick stocks using the growth at reasonable price, the GAAP approach. He also stresses the importance of what you don't own, a potentially high impact concept. In our conversation we also discuss his framework for picking stocks, position sizing and asset allocation. And of course, we talk about how to detect fraud and avoid fraudulent companies. Listen in. Harsha, welcome to the uh, Equity Master Mint Investor Art. Delighted to have you. Uh, I want to kick off our discussion by typically what we do on the Investor Art. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh going right back to where are you from? Uh about your household your parents and your initial schooling sure uh thank you first of all uh, rahul for inviting me on your show uh as far as uh, my background is concerned i come from a, a typical south indian middle class family uh i hail from bangalore that's where my schooling and initial education happened and uh, thereafter i moved to nit karnataka which used to be called at that point of time Uh, regional engineering college of karnataka uh, at suratkal then worked for a year in between before i did my mba uh, then i went to i am lucknow for my post graduation so that's my journey in terms of education and post that uh, i landed up in mumbai in 1996 so it's been about almost 27 years now so in fact i have stayed in mumbai <clears throat> more than uh, any other place uh, that i've lived earlier and since 1996 i have been part of capital markets initially started my career in equity research then went on to become a fund manager and currently with kotak for last uh, decade or more thank you sir yeah yeah about your home please your parents and your home place yeah 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 uh, i mean you would be uh, surprised to know that uh, nobody in our family or in our extended family ever had anything to do with uh, Uh, stocks or investments other than bank deposits i would say and uh, as as a typical uh, south indian family the focus was on getting a good education and a good job that was it i mean nobody in the family in business or in uh, finance for that matter but uh, i i i mean my father was a doctor and uh, my mother was a homemaker and typical family where uh, good education is what you aspire for right Uh, but over a period of time uh, my fascination towards numbers uh, kept increasing and i would say even towards the end of my engineering i was clear that i wanted to be in finance uh, and and uh, wanted to pursue a career and uh, that's what uh, made me do management uh, uh, course and uh, i mean i went to iim lucknow and graduated in uh, mba finance and thereafter it's been journey uh, in the equities and also i took up internship during that period uh, in equity research and which also helped me 
to understand what happens in stocks. And, uh, and obviously that helped me in getting my first job again in equity research. So I think what I wanted to, uh, all of that uh, actually kept falling in place uh, over a period of time. And yes. I've been fortunate to do what I like to do as a hobby. Uh, there are many people who would do a certain job, but they may not be really passionate about that uh, particular uh, function or stream of activity. But in my case, uh, thankfully, I'm very, very fortunate that I'm doing what I like the most. Well, it's very apparent because on a Saturday morning, you and me are recording this <laughs> because we love what we do. So that's very obvious. So once again, thank you for doing this on a Saturday. Uh, uh, so in uh, so when you were doing your engineering and your MBA and you're coming home, so no IPO forms lying around your house because that was just after the IPO boom, uh, nothing like that? Your parents were very conservative and just did normal deposits? No, I would say, I mean, my father had an, had one investment I forgot to mention. In fact, my grandfather also had that investment. Uh, coming from uh, Karnataka uh, and an area which is close to where Karnataka Bank started off, uh, all of us, most of us in the family would have some shares of Karnataka Bank at some point of time. Uh, and these were not bought in the market, but they had applied during the IPO and the subsequent uh, issues, etc. So that's the only thing that was connecting us with the stock market at that point of time, I would say. Uh, but uh, as, as I started to work, uh, just after my engineering, I started to, uh, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, maybe in the third or fourth year itself, I was keen to <clears throat> look at uh, finance as career. And I used to keep reading financial newspapers, try to track things, although the understanding was very, very less, but I used to do that. And, uh, and as I started my uh, uh, career after my engineering, obviously had some income to really go and try what you have uh, understood or thought that you have understood. So I did invest in IPOs. I think at that point of time, uh, a couple of them were uh, good ones, but most of them were tuition fees, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember the names today. Uh, but yes, a couple of them where I made a little bit of money were, I think, uh, Maruti, uh, State oh, Bank of wow. India, and Morgan Stanley had a close-ended fund, if you remember. Uh, the very famous Morgan Stanley yeah. growth fund. Yeah. And in fact, it was very difficult to get uh, forms for that uh, particular issue. And somehow, uh, I had managed to get it on a couple of our, uh, our friends. And we all invested. And uh, thankfully, we didn't hold it for long uh, because it opened at, I think, if I remember now, maybe 17 or 18 rupees. Whereas, I mean, a mutual fund, it has to start with an NAV of 10, right? Yeah. Be a close-ended and... It was also looked at as if it's a stock and has a lot of uh, future opportunities. And we were quick enough to actually book that profit. So oh, wow. yes, I mean, these were, I mean, the, the three that I mentioned were the ones where we made money initially. Otherwise, all of them were... Uh, <laughs> so this, uh, the forms you got for Morgan Stanley Growth Fund, did you have to pay a premium to get the forms or... You had the, you got the. No, we didn't have to pay a premium, but we had to uh, stand in a queue for quite some time. I remember it was a couple of hours to uh, get that form, and somehow we had managed it. And not that we made lots of money, we didn't have so much money to invest into, but it was a good uh, beginning, I would say. ROI was good. Yes. Amount will be less. Yes. So, well, uh, let me congratulate you because you're one of the very few people who probably made money on that fund in those times. Uh, I think there was some fund there. Everyone who was associated. In fact, we had a, a guest on the investor hour, uh, 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 Shri, Shri Ram, Sh 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 Okay. Uh, 
uh, from Enam. He was actually at Morgan Stanley at that time. And he explained what went wrong and how the really the fund uh, kind of it ended up in the situation it did because of they had too much money, too few stocks. So they rode up the price and then, you know, they were empty. If they had to sell, they were driving the price lower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what, what a time that was, right? The IPO time. So uh, in this whole period, of course, from engineering till date, uh, a lot of the large span, uh, which has been like your, well, let me, let's start with the first one. You've spoken about some of the IPO failures, which was your first initial big investment failure and what you learned from it. Do you remember? There have been many failures. Actually, if somebody says that uh, they have not made mistakes or they've uh, got nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, right? I don't think uh, that's true. Either they have that's, not. That's only at cocktail parties. <laughs> Sorry? That's only at the cocktail parties. Yeah. and or, or they have been very, very lucky and they have not invested for a long time. Maybe, yes, it is possible in a certain phase in a couple of stocks. But if you have been investing for decades and if you have, uh, I mean, uh, seen the investments, I think that's never going to happen. There will always be mistakes. I think many mistakes over a period of time. And, and uh, uh, once I came into uh, stock markets, obviously, uh, the learning also kept increasing. So the, the bad lemons were there in the portfolio, but I wouldn't say that they were disasters in that sense. Yes, more manageable kind of uh, losses that we had to book. And uh, generally, I've been uh, cutting losses much faster than uh, getting out of winners. So I think... Uh, in that sense, the amount of loss that we have made on some of the bad investments comparatively is much lesser than what we would have lost if we had taken a wrong bets in terms of the portfolio size or in terms of uh, holding it for a longer period in the hope that it will recover, etc. You know, that's such a, a counterintuitive strategy, but it works so well. Just cut your losses and let your winners run. Yes, yeah, but the absolutely. Human I think is... this is one thing if you follow, I think even if you are wrong and you are bound to be wrong, right? I mean, we say that this is not uh, shooting or archery or gymnastics where you get a bullseye or a 10 out of 10. Even if you get six or seven out of 10 right, uh, it's, it's good from a long-term perspective. And what is more important is out of those six or seven that, that are winners, how much money you make and how much money you lose or how much less money you lose on the uh, uh, investments that have not worked for you. I think that's the key for success, especially if you're managing funds for a long term. And definitely this is not T20, right? I mean, this is test match or a marathon. So you have to keep doing same thing over and over again so that you compound it over a long period of time. Yeah. So I was just saying that uh, it's a counterintuitive strategy because the human tendency is when you make a profit, you want to book it quickly because you don't want to lose the profit. And when something falls, you are saying, you know, let me maybe double down because now it'll rise. And that is the worst thing, right? Yes, uh, that you can absolutely. do. And uh, in interestingly, uh, we've been doing this podcast for since May 22. I think in most of our episodes, this idea has come out to be one of the core ideas. Get rid of the underperformers and let your winners run. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, everyone, all of you guys have such wonderful track records. So, you know, the like they say, yeah, just copy the good ideas out there, right? You don't have to come up with your own new idea. Yeah, I mean, well. I mean, the, the good investments are usually the boring investments. They will remain in the portfolio for a long period of time. They won't give you a lot of thrill. They keep compounding at a certain pace. 
But when you look at it over 10 years, 15 years, you will realize that you have created a lot of money uh, through those investments. I think that's the key for long-term success. It's not about how many multi-baggers you have in the portfolio. That is, I completely agree. So uh, just to talk about some critical days in history, uh, of one of course is the Husher Mehta, you know, the whole sharp rise and fall. Uh, you were in the engineering college then? or Yes, I was following it only through newspapers, etc. But the understanding of what had happened at that point of time was really, really uh, less, I would say. But over a period of time after coming into the stock markets, uh, uh, understood the whole issue in terms of how it unfolded, how it uh, unraveled, etc. Uh, but at that point of time, it was just reading in the newspapers. Yeah, that was some uh, phase, right? The whole country got sucked into it. Yes, yes. that was some phase. And uh, after, and thankfully, that, my career started after that. So I think <laughs> we're outsiders rather than insiders in that sense. Yeah, uh, stock market. Yeah. So whoever entered at that phase, I can imagine because of, uh, it really de uh, dealt a big blow to people because what they were doing was not just regular cash stocks; they were doing the badla stuff, which is like like a future. Am I yes. right in saying? Yes, that's right. So they were leveraged, and that's why it really destroyed, uh, you know, a lot of wealth at that point. In and also, in fact, uh, the extent of bull run that happened was so swift. Uh, yeah. In a span of few months, the stocks uh, went many fold. I yeah. think, but also sucked in a lot of other investors who were not looking at investments at that point of time. They got sucked in. Yeah, yes. they all got sucked in. Yeah. yeah. Then, of course, we had the FII bull run uh, when the foreign money started coming in. Morgan Stanley and all these guys came. You came in really after both these spikes had happened in 1996. So the first one you probably faced was the TMT, the IC bubble, 99, 2000, 2001. Uh, take us through that. Uh, what were you think? What were your initial impressions? What were you thinking? How do you deal with it? Any episodes come to mind? Yeah, at that point of time, I was uh, still in equity research, but handling sectors other than TMT. So to that extent, uh, uh, we were all Delta lucky hand. Yeah, <laughs> you you missed the Harshad Mehta. You missed everything, and now you missed yeah. the TMT also. So in fact, we were all worried that whether there'll be future for uh, analysts who are uh, tracking some of the other sectors. Uh, okay, <laughs> the old economy sectors. Old economy. Yeah. So I was handling oil and gas, petrochemicals, automobiles. Nobody was interested to yeah. read those reports. Time. Mm -hmm. And all that interest was in only one segment, which was tech and a little bit media uh, towards the end of the rally. So to that extent, uh, I mean, the excesses that happened, happened only in that segment. Obviously, from a price to earnings multiple, various other valuation metrics came into being. PEG to begin with, then price to sales, then what can they do if they continue to grow at that pace for 10 years, 15 years, et cetera. And, and everybody extrapolated what happened in the previous one or two years to say that that will keep repeating for next decades, et cetera. So I think clearly there were excesses. And uh, when you look at markets, you will always have periods of excesses. But this was one where a particular segment, a very, very narrow segment in that sense, especially in, in the context of Indian markets, uh, was creating all the leadership. So at some point of time, it was bound to crack. And, and uh, I mean, it happened uh, across the globe. And, and we right. had to see the mayhem uh, for quite some time. Yeah. So two points related to that. First, uh, you were on the old economy side. And uh, like any old economy uh, analyst, I think those days I was looking at cement, steel, maybe... Not much of a difference than what I used to handle. Right? Yeah. And... Uh, 
what valuations everything looks so exciting but no one's interested yes yes how, how do you deal with that uh, how do you make an investment case guys we should be buying cement stocks or we should be buying steel stocks yeah i mean we kept uh, doing the basic stuff right and uh, kept asking uh, investors at that time to look at some of these uh, uh, businesses which were quite inexpensive and uh, and and if you believe that india would grow and these were some of the industries which had uh, very very low penetration for example i'm talking about auto cement etc right yeah. so to that extent the long term growth roadmap was really really good and the valuations were quite reasonable just that uh, there was absolutely no interest apart from the tmt sectors at that point of time yeah. but i think you you keep seeing those uh, episodes every now and then right i mean later on we had the infra engineering Cap yeah, we'll talk about that. kind of a rally where nobody wanted to look at anything else so you will keep seeing these uh, i mean phenomenon every now and then in the market it's just that uh, one needs to wait through that particular moment not get caught in the either the momentum or the greed or uh, at the same time not lose sight of valuations and uh, the portfolio uh, diversification etc because it's it's always that fear of missing out is what leads you to make more mistakes and most retail investors i would say in every bull run they enter towards the end of the bull run because that is when they would see a lot of media stories uh, news articles about how wealth has been created they would be seeing that uh, in their friends network relatives network and they end up chasing this momentum and that's typically the end of the bull market and we have seen that and and in fact uh, uh, in a light hearted way we keep saying that uh, the moment you see your end investors becoming more bullish than yourself uh, that's the time to be uh, cautious right yeah. generally at the bottom of the market you are probably more bullish than you are pushing yes yeah. <laughs> you are asking them to put money into the funds etc but there is absolutely no interest i think that's the point where the markets will bottom out yeah uh, but typically at the top of the market you will see them becoming more bullish than probably some of the money managers yeah. from your experience is there any way to deal with this bias i i know this is so ingrained in human like brains but is there a way you can sort of uh dilute it a little where you respond more to greed and you run away from uh, a situation where there's fear and probably a better investment opportunity Well, it's easier said than done i think it comes a lot from your own temperament and uh, something is inherent to you uh, many people will not be able to change that uh, many over a period of time maybe through conscious uh, 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 looking back into what has happened how they have done etc maybe they'll be able to change bit of that temperament but uh, it's it's easier said than done i would say but generally if you look across uh, um uh, financial financial market related books or management books uh, the advice doesn't change right i mean they may use different words but the advice remains the same but the irrational behavior of investors still continues maybe the there is a different set of investors who are doing that irrational behavior or different segments which are going into expensive zone etc but typically what you have seen in the previous cycle more or less comes and Uh, uh pans out in a similar way with slightly a uh, different tilt every time with different sectors or maybe different kind of a, a phase etc but otherwise these keep uh, these cycles keep happening and and uh, i mean only if you consciously try to question your decisions of the past how they have done uh and and look back and really 
take a hard look in terms of what has worked and what has not worked. And typically people focus on what has worked, right? I mean, that's a general tendency, but I think that's the most, uh, 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 more, that is most detrimental to your long-term success because you are not looking at the mistakes and you're not trying to correct what can be corrected uh, over a period of time. Yeah, so uh, uh, just to add to that, uh, the mistakes are the, the better teachers for you, right? And uh, you can limit your losses, like Warren Buffett says, right? Rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never yeah. forget rule number one. So you have to figure out where you're losing money and you uh, you kind of uh, try and plug that. But I, I completely agree with you that end of the day, the books are saying the same thing. You have to figure out how you build your temperament and there's yes. no, easy, yeah. no easy way to do it, I say that. Coming to the second point related to the whole TMT period, you mentioned PEG the price to earnings multiple in the context of growth, and you mentioned price to sales. Now, this is a pattern, I think, which is recurring, where every bull run comes up with new ratios to justify all the pricing. I think Harshad Mehta was some uh, replacement, replacement cost theory, yes. replacement cost or whatever, and then there was PG and all these come up. How do you deal with these? Because aren't you running a risk, theoretically, that you may end up missing a genuine shift in investment theory or investment practice? No, sure. Uh, this is one of the most difficult things to uh, really uh, uh, come up with an answer to. And every time some of these uh, bull phases or irrational behavior, it could happen even on the downside, for example, continue to such a point that even some of the seasoned investors will be asking back to themselves whether what they have followed for the previous 10, 20 years is any more relevant or not. So I think, again, there is no easy answer. But again, uh, on a fundamental basis, how businesses run, how valuation works doesn't change. right? If, if the company is making sustainable cash flows, high returns on cash flow, uh, shareholder money, then eventually, if you are not paying overvalued uh, uh, premium to that particular stock, you should be able to make reasonable amount of money, right? But if anything is wrong in any of this piece, either the valuation is absurd when you enter at the beginning, or there is no cash flow at all, and there is just a, a fad in terms of following something in the hope that that will become a very large uh, uh, pool of uh, profitability, etc then there is always a risk. So I think that's where you need to see whether uh, the business models are proven or not, whether they're uh, scalable in nature, if they're scalable, whether the company that you are investing into is in such a position that it can keep gaining market share or gaining leadership position in that particular segment. And one of the most critical things to analyze uh, uh, is how the capital allocation decisions would happen from uh, some of these businesses. because most of the companies in the Indian context, for example, would have chosen a, a segment where there is reasonable amount of uh, growth going forward. They may also get the growth coming into the company, but what do they do after reaching a certain size and whether they're really able to allocate capital in a way that it sustains a higher level of uh, returns for shareholders or increases the return of uh, return for shareholders is something that you have to critically analyze. And most of the companies which are unable to take those good capital allocation decisions are the ones who will do well in a particular phase, but uh, they will not be able to handle that growth. And either they get into very, very unrelated businesses or 
allocate capital into such businesses or such projects which will not be uh, remunerative as much as what they used to do in the past, etc. So clearly, I think uh, capital allocation decision, the scalability, the 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 overall uh, uh, business model, whether it is sustainable, proven, etc. These are some things which will not change whether you are uh, looking at a, a new age industry or old industries this market or any other geography i think these are some fundamental things that will continue to remain relevant so this is another test for our viewers and uh, you know uh, listeners that whenever a phase comes and these new ideas get sort of pushed around you have to stick to your proven ideas and you may miss it like for example if one were to take this whole uh, uh, these, uh, what do you call them? Uh, platform companies, which don't have a revenue model. Uh, you, you're going to miss them and you're going to feel pretty stupid not having applied in the IPO, etc. But if you can't, if it doesn't fit your model of cash flows, return on yes. capital, allocation, profitability, it's better to stay out of it, I think. Yeah, and one more thing, Rahul, uh, just to uh, circle back on that. A lot of people want to make money on the stocks which have been in the news and which somebody has already bought, etc. Because they feel, again, the fear of missing out. But there are several other businesses in this country where you can still make money. right? So all that you need for a good portfolio is maybe 40, 50, 60 stocks, depending on the size of the portfolio. You need, I mean, there are 5,000 odd stocks in the country. Not all of them are tradable, investable, etc. But that's a large universe. Out of that, you have to really pick and choose a few businesses that you like and uh, at valuations that you are ready to really invest in. So from that uh, perspective, uh, you will keep missing out many of these uh, uh, investment ideas. Uh, forget whether they are from a, a new set of businesses, even in the old set of businesses, many a times you will miss out. But I think you just have to move on and look for other opportunities. It's not end of the road. I mean, you have to keep batting, you have to keep staying at the trees. You need, you need to be a dravid. <laughs> yeah, Stay yes, longer, sir. it'll still yes, it'll come. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so after the whole TMT thing was, of course, what we spoke of the whole... Uh, what do you call it? The infrastructure boom, the capital uh, asset boom, the real estate boom, the build-up boom. Take us through that. By then, you were already managing, managing. money. Yes, You're already managing money. So, how was that period for you? By the way, I must tell you, I met uh, one of our first guests on the Investor Hour, exited in two thousand seven, before the whole thing, and uh, he actually published a report. He's saying this doesn't make sense, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and he exited. So that's that's the bar you have to beat now. <laughs> no, as mutual fund investors, we are always uh, looking at yeah, relative performance. We will always remain uh, invested in that sense. But we will take due care of our investors' money in terms of where to invest, where not to invest. Yes, coming back to the infra, capital goods, power sector boom, I think that was another uh, a madness in terms of valuation for some of these businesses. And uh, everyone was looking just at growth rather than cash flows or sustainability of those businesses, whether the companies had the manpower and the resources to really execute some of those projects, because it was all going up based on the order inflows and the information around uh, land bank, land, land bank. bank so I think uh, that was an excess that happened uh, in the world economy uh, part. Uh, more, more so in the infra power and some of these uh, capital intensive businesses. 
again, uh, uh, we did have investments in that space, uh, kept reducing towards uh, 2007, 2008. But even after the global financial crisis, we did have uh, some of those investments in the portfolio. But over a period of time, we could manage that. And in the entire period, we were able to outperform simply because end of the day, it's again, I'll come back to the same uh, point, that it's not about what you have or what you don't have. It's also about how much do you have in the portfolio? The Just allocation. because you had an infra position in the portfolio, if it is not a sizable bet, if it's not going to harm your overall portfolio returns, uh, it was a manageable risk. Yes, in hindsight, maybe you, you would say that uh, you could have been zero in that particular uh, stock, etc. But that comes only with uh, uh, hindsight. Uh, otherwise, I would say as long as you know clearly what to avoid, I think that's very, very uh, relevant because if there are 5,000 stocks in our market and if you're choosing 40, 50, that means that you know what to not touch. And that also leads to uh, your portfolio returns because many a times I'm uh, questioned by our investors, partners, etc. that we don't see any new set of stocks in your portfolio. We don't see this multi-bagger, that multi-bagger, but how have you generated this kind of returns? It's amazing. And they compare with uh, another portfolio saying that uh, this portfolio has a couple of these winners, but still their overall returns are lower. I think, again, it comes back to portfolio sizing and what is not there in the portfolio. I think very few uh, uh, investors in mutual funds focus on what is not there in the portfolio. A large part of your relative outperformance can also come from what you don't hold in the portfolio. I think uh, these are some of the things, uh, I mean, that are relevant. And yeah. During that infra boom, yes, we did have our uh, bad investments, but those were all manageable, I would say. Yeah, so position sizing is something we'll talk about uh, later in the podcast. But uh, uh, you mentioned that, I guess, as the valuations kept going up, based on your processes, you kept reducing because uh, there's a valuation filter that you all have and that helped you control it. But uh, what was the most like uh, in that uh, phase where property prices shot up, stock prices shot up, et cetera. What was the most striking thing to you about that? What made it unique for you? Like, were you, were you? Uh, I, I know as a fund, you are fully invested. So that's not a function of whether you're bullish or bearish. Uh, the function of bullish or bearish is how it's allocated, how it's position sized. But uh, what is that uh, whole, uh, how self-aware were you that now, you know, we are about to have like a crash landing or this is going to be problematic and we need to get, uh, prepared for it? I think first and foremost, the valuations. I think those valuations were definitely uh, not going to be sustainable. Um, I mean, if you look at the price to earnings multiple, most of these businesses in the infra were trading at 30, 35 or even higher price to earnings multiples. Um, hardly any cash flows and, uh, and a lot of leverage on the books. And uh, with the kind of inflows that were being talked about, when we actually did our ground check, we realized that many of these companies didn't have the resources to really execute. Forget about executing the, those kind of uh, projects. They had not even taken due care in terms of bidding for those projects because they knew that the market caps were coming because of these announcements in terms of what awards have come on, on which companies. So to that extent, the entire focus was on winning the bids, not in terms of how will you execute if something were to go against your expectations. For example, we have seen examples where people had just looked at uh, 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 simple broking reports on 
steel prices, coal prices, and had built it and, and bid for road projects, for example. Oh, wow. And when you are bidding for long-term projects, and if you're taking uh, 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 maybe some secondary opinion in terms of uh, where the prices are headed, and if you take those short-term inputs as your long-term uh, inputs, then there are bound to be a problem. That was clearly visible. And, and many places we, we realized that while they were talking about starting execution and projects going on full swing, many of those sites when, when we visited, there was hardly any mobilization of resources, equipments and the resources that were needed to really do those projects were clearly not to the extent that you would be comfortable. I think those were clearly signs and warnings that were there. And then obviously the valuations uh, were also very, very rich. And the other thing to look at was most of the new mutual fund launches were happening in the infra theme, right? The amount of money that was going into the infra theme and the amount of money that was invested in the diversified funds in this basket was so large that it was not sustainable. I mean, you can't have one or two segments of your economy driving uh, forever. Yes, it happens in certain places, but uh, as long as valuations are fair, you can play that particular investment theme. But beyond that, it becomes uh, really, really uh, risky. Yeah. So what I find interesting is that when you analyze it, uh, in every, I think it happens post every bull market, the signs were always there, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's whether you were willing to see them or not. Anyways, moving, we jumped straight 10, 12 years to the pandemic. Uh, when did you first hear about something is happening uh, and uh, uh, start to think about, do we take action or not? And then talk us through how it played out. 2020, of course, was very eventful in that sense. Yeah, I think uh, uh, by the beginning of the year itself, uh, the international media and even Indian media was already covering the cases that were being reported elsewhere and uh, the signs were not encouraging but none of us um, had thought that it would come and hit us uh, so fast and in in that magnitude i would say uh, even as late as uh, march for example while uh, we were all worried about uh, how cases were spreading uh, throughout the world we never had an inclination in terms of uh, we would have a pan-India complete lockdown for weeks, etc. I think those were never really in anybody's uh, uh, base case assumption. So I think all of us were taken by surprise. And this is something that none of us had seen this in this in generation, right? And how could you prepare for that? We couldn't. The only way the portfolio survived that was the, the due diligence that you do always, that you invest in businesses which are supposedly being run by managements which have seen cycles which have waded through that volatility and you have not overpaid for those investments if that uh, has has remained intact then obviously you can hope that even when this crisis comes and goes you will be able to come out of it uh, in a in a rather uh, insulated way i would say but beyond that, I don't think we could position ourselves in a particular sector or a segment saying that this is going to be completely insulated, etc. Uh, I mean, I don't think that would have worked at all. And uh, as it is, I mean, as I said, we don't take cash calls at all. So we don't believe in taking cash calls. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, we remain fully invested. Maybe we had a little bit more cash than what we generally used to have. But other than that, uh, we were not uh, prepared in any sense uh, uh, for the for the aftermath of the pandemic. So I, I like what you said because you're saying we are investing in really good companies 
and the good companies should be able to manage the crisis that come their way and if, if or at least come, better than the rest of the company better, yeah, on a relative, relative basis, basis they should be better. so you should come out better on the other side so that, you know that's a very good way of thinking because if you were taking a cash call at your end or taking a sector call at your end you're only adding the levels of yes. risk to the decision making process yes. the more parameters are there are the you know yes. I mean, the more risk there is <laughs> uh, the reason that i mentioned that you should know what you are not going to do is simply because reduce the number of decision points because yeah. go back to what we discussed earlier not every decision of yours is going to be right That's so right. to that extent you minimize the number of decision points more likely that you will be making uh, less number of mistakes although it's not a guarantee but at least you can hope yeah. for it and the decision making points that you are keeping with yourself you become damn good at it yes right? and and so, also i mean we clearly believe uh, that once an investor invests into an equity mutual fund or a debt mutual fund the person has already taken a call in terms of investing into that particular asset class so after that i should not be trying to do a uh, uh, an SIP further in terms of invest, when to invest that particular sum of money into the markets, etc. The mandate is already given that you have to invest into equity, right? Yep. Then your job is to decide at that point of time, what are the best investments that you can look for and how to size those investments. That's the only thing that you can do. But you cannot say that, I mean, the money has come into the fund, but I am bearish and I will not invest in it. That's not uh, something that we do. Yeah. So I like I also like that fact because you're very clear on your mandate. There's no confusion. Yes, yes. And uh, so I know there are other funds out there. Uh, one of the funds is a relatively popular fund. They they don't take a cash call, but they simply say if we don't find enough stocks, we'll end up with more cash, right? So I guess everyone has their own you know uh, paths to their own nirvana in terms of their investment. Yeah, yeah. I mean uh, yeah. The mile, uh, the the journey could be different, but I think destination is uh, what yeah, you aspire yeah, for yeah. is the same. As long as you have the same investment discipline, hopefully it should work. It may not work in a certain phase, but over a period of over time, time it should work. Yeah, yeah. And and I think they, for the viewers, you have to. That's why you, the choice of which path to take is very important. You should think through that. If you're going to go to Harsha and say, "Hey, Harsha, the world's collapsing. There's a pandemic coming. Why aren't you holding cash?" <laughs> That doesn't gel with the investment objective, right? Then you need to be somewhere else. So you have to have thought through and then you bet and then you stick with it. Okay, uh, moving on. So we've got a little bit of history now on how you've dealt with and been through these cycles. Along this, we've discussed a little bit about your stock selection process. Let's talk about it again and take us through uh, how would you define your stock selection process? What are the key factors that you look at? And also in that, if you can highlight uh, some areas where you think you are more focused than you generally see around you, just to give us a flavor of that, please. No, Rahul, frankly, we don't want to say that we are different from others. I don't think, uh, I mean, that's true. Uh, I mean, we do the same kind of analysis as uh, many other investors do. Many okay. other investors may probably do more than what we do. Just that we stick to uh, what is, what is uh, uh, our investment philosophy. Uh, generally, we have been uh, investors who are looking at growth at reasonable price. Mm -hmm. And there is an explanation of uh, explanation for why we do this, because it's our belief that if you are focusing on the top end of the market, which is your high growth, high multiple basket, or the value bucket, uh, 
the amount of patients that you have to have or the risks that are there in those particular buckets are much more in the Indian context, especially uh, 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 as compared to growth at a reasonable price is what we think. Uh, it's not that value investing doesn't work or uh, high growth, high quality investing doesn't work. We do have stocks from these buckets as well in our portfolio. But when you look at the weighted average valuation of our portfolio, generally our valuation level would be very reasonable. And we look for an expected earnings growth, which is a couple of percentage points higher than what the benchmark is expected to do. Over a period of time, the benchmark expectations will change, our portfolio company expectations will change, but as long as that spread remains a couple of percentage points in favor of the portfolio, ideally that should result into outperformance without taking too much risk on the valuation. It's a simple philosophy that we follow. And within this, uh, we look for businesses which are proven, as I mentioned earlier, which are scalable and look for companies which have a certain degree of competitive advantage and, and sustainable competitive advantage in those particular industry segments. That's something that we are really uh, critically looking at. We focus a lot on management. Uh, it's not so black and white, but over a period of time, you are able to judge the management in terms of their integrity, in terms of uh, whether their interests are aligned with the minority shareholders whether they have been fair to minority shareholders in the past, uh, how have they uh, 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 taken the company in the past through various cycles, various such issues. And uh, also we keep meeting the same managements every quarter, every six months. And, and we kind of know what they've been speaking over a period of time, whether they have been sticking to that. Yes, every phase is a different phase, every cycle may throw up different challenges, but some of the changes that they are doing, are they in line with what a minority shareholder would really want to see? Are they really increasing risk of the business just to satisfy uh, certain aspirations or whether they are really focusing on maintaining the profitability as well uh, with, with uh, uh, growth? And end of the day, the cash flow is something that is very, very critical, right? You can have all kinds of other numbers in the balance sheet and the profit and loss, but you can't really manipulate uh, cash flows. And that is something that will differentiate uh, companies which will sustain their growth and valuations over a period of time from the others who will not. And the valuation is, is always the final filter. Uh, I'm not saying that there is one way of looking at valuation. Every industry is a different one. Uh, every phase is a different one. You can't say that at a particular valuation, I will always sell and at a particular valuation, I will always, always um, buy. If you were to do that, then it would, have, it, would have, it would have been so easy that everybody could make just an Excel sheet and manage investments. That doesn't happen. But uh, a, a various valuation metrics, uh, starting from the simple price to earnings to uh, price to book, uh, EV a bit, uh, discounted cash flow, all of these matrices are really uh, useful in terms of comparing a particular business in terms of its own valuations with its history, as well as how it is okay. with respect to the peer group. I think all of these decisions uh, end up contributing to the final decision, which is of buying or selling a particular uh, investment. 
And uh, in, in our uh, 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 scheme of things, we have actually made sure that you don't get into a business where you are not comfortable. So we don't invest in any stock where we have no management contact, for example. No man, you don't invest in a stock where you have no management contact. Yes, is if there is no management contact, we will not invest into such businesses. Okay. That's point number one. Second is, we have already curated our investment units. Uh, it's currently about four hundred and fifty stocks. It, this may be ten percent of the overall number of stocks that are listed in the country, but in terms of market capitalization, probably ninety percent of the market capitalization of the country so to that extent we have a clear focus that what we will not do to begin with and within the bucket that we are focusing on then we look at all of these issues and try to see what fits the mandate uh, of that particular fund because the fund mandates also very very different right there are market capitalization limits there are thematic uh, exposure limits etc so depending on that and the liquidity then we decide whether a particular stock can go into all the portfolios or some of the portfolios and if at all to what level in terms of the portfolio size etc oh, nice very comprehensive i want to go to the first point you mentioned uh high growth highly valued and value stocks now typically most investors fall into either of the bucket the reason being when they think of investing they've all grown up with the old Warren Buffett style of investing buy cheap stocks and wait for the market to correct. And like you mentioned that sometimes you have to wait endlessly for the market to correct. And sometimes they don't correct at all. What I think uh, technically you call a value trap. You think the stock is cheap. You think the market is mispricing. You go and buy it, but it turns out the market was not buying it for a reason. So it's a value trap. The high growth, high valuation, they are on the headlines of every newspaper. Yeah. So that's where you, you fall into that. So I, I like this uh, uh, classification because uh, the growth at reasonable investing is like a gray area, which you have to define because uh, what is high growth? What is a reasonable valuation you have to figure out? But then I think what you're telling us is that you already got a framework in place where you are, you've got these companies that you want to do, 450 companies or what, that you've researched, uh, you're looking at management, you're looking at all of the things that you mentioned, you know, whether they have a moat to use a technical word, whether they have the increasing market share, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, have you always stuck to this growth at reasonable price approach all these 10, 12 years that you've been managing all these wonderfully, you know, uh, wonderful funds who've declared these wonderful returns? Or have you had a pivot? The reason I ask this is because Buffett himself had a pivot. He was value and now he is more like gap, you know, fair price for a good company as against a good price for a fair company. Yeah, uh, I would say that uh, there will be phases where you will have maybe little more of uh, high growth, high multiple stocks in your portfolio, or maybe you'll have a higher proportion of value stocks. But by and large, over the last uh, almost two decades of uh, fund management that uh, I've been practicing, uh, growth at reasonable price is something that I associate myself with. And I feel that while it's a middle of the road kind of an approach, it also comes with lesser risk, I would say. Mm -hmm. Because in a high growth, high multiple space, if growth for some reason disappoints, and, and 
when I say disappoints, it's vis-a-vis -vis the expectations. They may still be growing at 15, 20%, but if the expectation was to grow at 30, 35, for example, then there is a double whammy. One, your earnings will start to down, get downgraded, and you will also have the multiple contracts. Similarly, in the value bucket, my firm belief is for that value to get unlocked, there has to be some external trigger or an internal trigger. And as mutual fund managers, we manage transient money. We are not given money for our lifetime or, or endless period. Mm -hmm. There are investors who are coming in. There are investors who are going out. So I can't be taking a risk, which is more than the average risk that an investor is looking forward to. If it was a proprietary money, maybe you would put a, a, in, a, in a completely value stock for maybe next 15, 20 years and hope that at some point of time it will get unlocked. So, and also how will it get unlocked? Either there has to be a management change. If the existing management is leading to that value destruction, there has to be a management change. Or the value destruction could have happened because they have gone into unrelated businesses which are not yielding as much as uh, what the market uh, really expects uh, from these businesses, etc. Then there has to be uh, disinvestment of some of those businesses. Or they have to really think through in terms of changing the overall business model and come up with a new business model which will work, etc. So, and and every company will not be able to do some of these changes. It's not so easy. So to that extent, uh, my belief is if you if you enter into that segment, either your investment horizon has to be very very long, or you have to be ready to be uh, a kind of nimble accepting some yeah. of these mistakes and move more very fast but it's it's difficult right it's not as yeah. easy as growth at reasonable price or a high multiple stock you, you can't you can't you have, have structure to it bought, you yeah. have already bought it at a such a low valuation if it falls further you will always feel that i mean there is no further risk the risk may not be in terms of another derating it may be in terms of the relative performance yeah. right so again i mean uh, some of the things that i've discussed have been more in relation to how mutual funds are supposed to work because end of the day it's not about making absolute money it's about yes we have to make absolute money but in a in a relatively better manner so that's where we try to uh, focus on rather than saying that every investment has to make me a certain amount of uh, hurdle rate etc yeah so the thing uh, with these uh, triggers is no a lot of it is just going to be cover do you have access to the news and that's in the realm of speculation, right? That's when you get caught off guard. Uh, yeah, and also, if you look at uh, some of these value pockets, uh, they have tended to do well in certain phases because hmm. those are the phases either you have already exhausted all of the other investment ideas and people are coming in here because the liquidity is still huge and they are betting on new setup companies. Or as you said, there are some uh, news items which are saying that certain things would happen in certain businesses, etc. So you have to be really careful in that sense. So that's where uh, I would say that growth at reasonable price, while it may sound like a cliche, but we know what we mean by uh, reasonable price. While for an outsider, it may uh, sound like it's uh, something. Yeah, it so, sounds vague, but there's a process to it. You, you yeah. know uh, what let is me, let me, if I, I'll take a couple of minutes to explain that. Please, yeah. Uh, for example, if we believe that markets are at a, are at a fair range of valuations at any point of time, 
then our portfolio we won't try to be very very low on valuations we would try to be more or less in and around those fair range of valuation because we think that the market is also fairly valued and we are around that but compared to the benchmark expected earnings growth our portfolio earnings growth we will always be higher which means we are paying fair range of valuation just like the market but we are expecting higher level of growth for our portfolio companies if this thesis works then you should be able to ideally get out performance but there will also be time periods where market is trading at a very high multiple in that case we will be considerably lower than the average market multiple for example in october 2021 we felt that the market valuations were expensive uh, as i said we can't really go into cash to uh, reduce our uh, portfolio drag but we went out of certain segments which we felt were very very expensive for example it mid caps were almost zero in our portfolios some of the consumption stocks uh, were not there in the portfolio again because of the valuation expensiveness so by doing that our portfolio valuation was much lesser than the market valuations at that point of time whereas the growth still remained more or less in line with the market so that's another way of explaining growth at reasonable price yeah yeah that makes sense that makes sense the the thing is that this works in a mutual fund world it's a lot of it is about relative like you mentioned earlier but as an individual uh, it's difficult to uh, if you if you if you got a job if you're running a business and managing a portfolio is difficult to do this all the time but but uh, for all of those uh, i think we have mutual funds now, so. yeah that's that's right <laughs> you know that uh, many years ago someone had asked me you know how do i decide whether to invest in stocks or mutual funds and i had said it's a function of the free time you have yes exactly i mean if you are able to uh, do your own research with the same rigor that a professional fund house would be able to do you should do all your investments on your own but if not then i think it's the easiest way with a low cost you can participate yeah it, it and, and and that and that's not even it's not a plug it makes so much sense because you know people who are busy okay, let let me rewind a bit the day and age of buying a stock and holding it for eternity has gone because the world has become so dynamic you can see moats disappear overnight yeah. you know uh, today you can see a google which is trading at 45% 50% below its peak valuation just because you know something changed in the world now if you're not tracking that space you got a problem you, you have to be deep into it you can't keep about holding it for lifetime in fact uh, very few while while the average holding period of an investor in a mutual fund space has been going up thanks to the awareness that has come through but it's still very very low i would say uh, for an asset class like equity it has to be much higher a yeah. uh, couple of years back we did uh, uh, look at our initial set of investors in what was then called kotak 30 and now it's called kotak blue chip and how many of those investors are still remaining with us because this fund was launched in 1998 you will be surprised to know uh, this exercise we had done a couple of years back and there were only 80 investors 80 oh my god really yeah and most of them uh, uh, naturally were employees of kotak group at that point of time who were still part of kotak group etc Uh, uh invested at the ipo because that was the first fund from the group itself but i mean that tells you that while we keep talking about long term investments a very few investors actually are able to practice that i think that's what uh i mean tells you that the amount of compounding benefits that one can see is probably uh, not there because people tend to get out at regular intervals although that is changing i would say 
As a side note, we had Vetri Subramaniam on this podcast recently, and he was one of the fund managers for KPS. Yes, yes, yes. It was a wonderful podcast, that one. Okay, uh, you mentioned cash flow, and I think the importance of cash flows is growing. We're going to talk about frauds in a moment, how to detect a fraud and how to be careful when picking a company. So we'll come to that. But uh, did you speak about return on capital and how important is it in your uh, process? Can yes, you maybe articulate that a little bit more? Uh, on Because a lot of people are just looking at valuation. And uh, I think uh, the return on capital for an average investor is something which is highly underrated. Uh, I think they need to look at that a lot more than what they're just looking at the valuation multiples. Uh, first of all, for any business to be profitable and sustainable over a period of time, the return on capital should be higher than cost of capital. That's a simple logic, right? And anybody can evaluate this. If you are able to earn more than cost of capital, then obviously you are building that additional uh, returns and over a period of time that sustains your growth, etc. Uh, a lot of investors, I would say, uh, I'm not just saying uh, uh, retail investors, but even professional investors tend to look at just the growth or the EBITDA margins rather than uh, return on capital. Uh, why do I say that? Because market also at various points of time tends to uh, uh, re-rate the companies which are improving their margins or improving their growth rates. Yes, uh, these two can also lead to higher return on capital employed, but we need to see whether a return on capital can be endlessly taken up or is there a, a fair level at which you need to look at increasing your overall growth because finally the value that create that, that you create is a combination of growth and the return that you make, right? So if you simply keep increasing your margins, EBITDA margins, or uh, uh, your uh, return on capital, you may be doing that at the expense of growth, which is also not good for the company. So finally, you need to say that, okay, let's say uh, cost of capital is around the double digits or uh, high single digits. And if a company is able to get a, a, a few percentage points of spread over that, and if they're able to increase the growth rate from the current 15% to let's say 20%, that's a better bargain than trying to take your return on capital from 35% to 40%, but at the expense of your growth or taking your EBITDA margins to such a high level that you don't uh, really grow. And I think if you look at the FMCG companies in the Indian context, you will clearly see this whenever their EBITDA margins grow to a large extent because of any uh, external aid, for example, if uh, raw material prices crash to a very large uh, number, then maybe instead of cutting the prices, they try to invest that back into the business and keep the margins at a lower level so that they grow the market, right? Because finally, your value creation is also coming from growth and, of course, from the profitability. So that is, I think, something that one needs to keep focusing on rather than just one of them. So the discipline here is if you make a profit, you are reinvesting it because you know you're anyways going to get a good return on capital. And that's like, a, that gives you that. Uh, yes, and, 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 and I would say there is, a, there is a fine balance between how much you can really increase your EBITDA margins or your return on capital. Because at some point of time, it will start hurting your growth. So you should be careful that it doesn't hurt your growth and put you into some other problem. 
but yes a reasonable spread over cost of capital is what uh, one should be aspiring for okay interesting uh moving to position sizing you spoke about position sizing a while back and the importance of it uh talk to us a little bit about how you go about uh thinking about position sizing and if you can also bring in an individual element how as an individual you would do it just so that our viewers get a flavor of that as well yeah uh so uh we we try to build positions gradually uh whenever we look at a new opportunity very unlikely that you will see that as part of our top 10 or even top 20 holdings i would say even if it is a large cap established business which has been part of our portfolio in the past now it's coming afresh into the portfolio etc but we are usually starting to build that from a, a lower size weight and then we wait to see how our investment thesis is working over the subsequent 3 or 4 quarters we tend to get some information in terms of what's happening whether our thesis is working or not uh, what is happening to the valuation assuming that everything is uh, as per our expectation then we continue to build our position and we are also aware of the liquidity and the benchmark weights uh, of of that particular stock because end of the day your portfolio risk comes from not the uh, top 10 holdings but the top 10 active weights in your portfolio so to that extent you should also be looking at what kind of active weight you are comfortable taking rather than just an absolute weight i mean just to simplify this for the viewers benefit suppose you have a 3% uh, stock in a benchmark and if you are taking a 4% position because you are positive but there is another non index stock and you have taken 2.5% position while a 4% position may seem like an absolutely higher level of exposure to your stock but in terms of the active risk you have actually taken only 1% because it is 3% uh, in the benchmark whereas a non index stock which is 2.5% in your portfolio is of a higher risk to the portfolio i think that understanding is also key uh, this is just to clarify that all in the relative world right i mean if you are a individual investor if you are not benchmarking to anything else maybe you will have a different way of constructing the portfolio but in a mutual fund world i think uh, this is uh, one of the key things to manage the risk vis-a-vis -vis the market and your portfolio yeah the irony is in the individual world people don't benchmark and they should because we only remember our winners we think we have done damn well until you sit on that excel sheet and you come up with 6% and then you realize that uh, you know what's the mistake you made yeah. so there are one of the other that. mistakes that uh, uh, generally people do is also not to look at what is the current weight in the portfolio right okay. if you keep looking at it from a perspective that you had bought it at a certain price and it is higher than that price today you are not really realizing the risk suppose a 3% position when it was taken in the portfolio now it's become a 6% then obviously the risk is much higher right so to that extent you need to keep looking at uh, portfolio weights on a continuous basis i mean the entire investment world is 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 on a i mean continuous basis you can't just take it and uh, forget it so to that extent i think a continuous monitoring and making sure that there is no unnecessary risk in the portfolio i mean i'm not saying that you should not keep it at 6% if a stock has done well but you should be aware of what risk it is bringing to the portfolio whether you are comfortable taking that risk or not yeah. and again it's a question of at what valuation this company is trading at at a particular point of time maybe if the valuations are still fair you will continue to hold on or if valuations have come off maybe you will continue to hold on 
So I, I also like the way you put it that you you've decided on a stock, you've done all your research, gone through all your notes, et cetera, et cetera. And even then, when you are fully convinced you're buying in small amounts and retesting whether you had got it right, whether what you had projected is going to go right. This is the completely reverse of FOMO. On the one hand, you've come up with this exciting idea. You're coming out of a research meeting and you've been sold this stock and you're excited. But then you say, okay, you know what? You're going to buy it over one year. So you run the risk that the stock may run up, but the greater risk is that you could still have been wrong in your thesis, which could have a bigger impact. So you're literally controlling your downside. Yeah, this is the Rahul Dravid way, since you mentioned Rahul Dravid uh, earlier. Because, uh, I mean, you can score runs either through sixers or through singles or playing dot balls. Uh, I mean, we have done this interview for some time, although you are supposed to ask me questions. Let me ask you a question. how many sixes Sachin Tendulkar has hit in tests to score his 15,000 odd runs? Oh, I, have no no, I, I don't watch much cricket, but I, I would say probably about 1,000 sixes or 500. No, he has played 200 test matches and he has hit some 60 odd uh, sixes in the uh, test. But he has scored 15,000 runs because he could bat for almost 30,000 balls. Right? Wow. So, so that's the bias in me, right? My bias in me is the big run, the big shots make the money. Correct, hey, correct, yeah. correct. And only one person in the test history has played more number of balls than uh, Sachin Tendulkar, and that's Rahul Dravid. Oh, wow. Although he has scored maybe 2,000 runs lesser than him because his strike rate was low. And he has hit only 21 sixers. Oh, wow. So you, coming to the portfolio side, you need not have multi-baggers to really do a consistent compounding to work. All you need is 40, 50 good stocks who will do reasonably better than the market and you're done. You can still hit the world record. That's, that's one approach, but obviously it's very boring. You will not see the names that everyone wants to see in the portfolio, but it is effective way of managing. Goes back to the temperament, goes back to the cocktail party. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that's know, the only in the, way to manage money. I'm saying yeah. everyone has a, a way of managing money, but uh, it, it works as long as you stick to that discipline. Yeah, it's like in 2000, going to a party and talking about cement. You're not going to be a very popular yeah. guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's temperament. Yeah, another, to... another analogy which I typically give. Uh, uh, hope we have uh, time. Oh, yeah, ample time. Please, okay. please. Yeah. For example, uh, when we we were in college, I'm sure it was the case with you as well. All of us wanted to have a bike which was same as the other person, other friend. Huh, right? Fair point. So, yeah. It is time tested. Somebody is running it. You know whether your pocket money can afford it, etc. And you want to be safe. Maybe your first car also, you would have done the same that the most popular ones that you see on the road, you wanted to buy that and run it. right? But as you move up in life, you want to have a car which is very different than everybody. It has to stand out in your building. So same is with investments. I think initially people are happy with whatever returns, consistent returns that they get. But slowly, as you said, if you go to a party and if you're not able to talk about something which is very, very in vogue at that point of time, they feel disappointed. And that's when diverting their energy towards something which is in fad or in momentum starts to happen. And that may or may not give you good good returns in the end. You know, this whole thing is rooted in evolution. And you see it in children all the time. Yes. That when they're growing up, they're all about group. They're all about, you know, I have the same habit. I have, you know, you're like each other. Yeah. But as you age, 
you want to break yes. out and stand out. Yes. Right? Yes. So yeah, I, I completely understand that. Okay. Uh, when to sell a stock? What? How? What is the process you go through and say, okay, guys, now it's time to get rid of it. I would say that decision is more difficult than identifying a buy opportunity because sometimes the valuations go to an extent where you will in the in uh, when you look back you may feel that you have sold it early right so i think the the way we do it is more or less similar to the way we approach our new investments uh, if we start believing that the growth rates would come down or the valuations are expensive we start to not put the incremental money into that particular store that's the first level so it remains in the portfolio but keeps going down, keeps down. when you actually start to feel that there is still a risk in the portfolio because the growth may fall off more than what you anticipate or the market anticipates maybe you will start trimming that's the next step okay. but if you have a complete uh, uh disappointment either in terms of the governance in terms of uh, some big change in the business which cannot be plugged immediately etc then you completely exit the stock so it's again just like a gradual process for buying uh, yeah. stocks we approach selling also similar so this basically uh, corroborates and underscores the idea of let your winners run you don't want to exit your winners uh, assuming all the yes all the fundamentals are in place all everything else is in place but the valuation is high so you're not saying his valuation has gone high i'm running away you're starting to trim you're starting to hold back yes. that that kind of makes sense right it for longer yes okay that that explains fraud we spoke about fraud a little talk to us about fraud how do you prevent yourself being caught in a situation where you are invested in a fraudulent company and in case it's happened mention it <laughs> no thankfully it has not happened uh, in the last uh, 17 18 years maybe of, one of the ipos maybe one of the ipos <laughs> yeah i mean i have forgotten the names of those companies so anyway it was tuition fees and it had to be there uh, but as long as uh, you do the due diligence properly and uh, very careful in terms of selecting the stock into the portfolio i think some of these risks can be minimized i'm not saying that you will be able to eliminate Uh, and portfolio sizing that also helps you in terms of not taking such big risk initially and hopefully over a period of time you'll be able to find out whether your investment thesis is working or not i think those are the only ways to uh, manage this there is no way to uh, expect a fraud will ha- happen in a particular company i mean we had this uh, infamous case of a it company where uh, yeah. uh, uh, people lost uh, a lot of money right i mean maybe 6 months back how could you expect anything would happen the only way we were at least at that point of time stayed out of that was uh, as i said i come from bangalore most of my friends uh, relatives have been in the software industry and uh, unfortunately i mean uh, surprisingly nobody seemed to be uh, nobody was in that particular company at any point of time nobody knew that company in terms of any people really worked so we were wondering i mean it is such a large company in terms of market capitalization we have so many friends and relatives working in the software industry none of them seem to be working in this company how is it possible that's it although the kind of issues that came up were completely different but there were some uh, kind of red flags that always was in our minds 
and obviously we were not comfortable with the kind of uh, uh, balance sheet and uh, cash flows and we stayed away and then finally i mean it it helped us yeah i think if there is one thing the typical investor looks even lesser than the return on capital is the cash flow statement they all stop at the pnl and i think that that's not great at all you have yeah, to look PNL at the cash and now. the sales growth i think is is what excites most of the people yeah yeah so keep in mind all the viewers and listeners cash flows that's what you need to look at uh harsha talking about yourself a little how do you think of asset allocation for yourself uh my asset allocation is very very different i mean i'm an out and out uh, equity investor not in direct equities because that's not permitted but most of my investments are in the funds that we manage or the esops that we have and uh, i would say hardly any investments into debt apart from whatever uh, is required from a statutory perspective the pf and stuff like that or maybe some balance in the bank etc otherwise it's been completely equity as a financial asset bullion no not much and thankfully my wife also doesn't like so much. Was, that was going to be my next question you were saying no is it okay at home <laughs> what about real estate a uh, real estate i do have but obviously that is to stay uh, otherwise not as an investment okay but uh, so i so i think that takes a lot of conviction to be because equities by default is like a bullish bet yeah yeah maybe right? those who are watching should not uh, follow the asset allocation that i follow because my risk appetite could be very different than somebody else's right yeah i think Fact, that uh, uh, i mean i'll i'll go back to a little bit of uh, the advice that my father had given so my father uh, obviously he had no uh, knowledge of stocks in that sense or so he used to say that see it's like a job in a bank the cashier handles a lot of cash but it's not his so remember that it's not your money it's somebody else's money and you should take only the risk that you will take as a investor assuming that all that money is yours so i used to tell him although i don't know how much sense i made to him because he didn't understand the concept of portfolio risk asset loss risk etc so i used to tell him that i mean i am taking actually lesser risk than what i would take on my money so uh, investors money is safe so yeah. to that extent i think uh, what you do with your own money uh, is very different than what you do as a as a fund manager because you are managing uh, yeah. public money so my investments are obviously all into equity and uh, and i'm happy about that yeah and i think uh, to the people who understand uh, and have a view it's fine to bet on your ideas etc but typically what i have found is that uh, in a country like ours uh, which has a huge opportunity but there also risks because yeah. we are still a, a nation that is developing you have to have a little bit of hard asset not a lot for a rainy day and uh, real estate now I, there is a question i'm going to ask you about your kids but uh, typically if you have kids you want to you know you want to give them a place to stay don't give them anything else they may get spoiled <laughs> but maybe give them a place to stay no so no uh, i was also very 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 uh, clear in my mind that mm-hmm. if i have to make a career in stock markets which uh, is very volatile uh, i have to have a place of my own in mumbai yeah. so at the age of 27 itself i had uh, purchased my uh, first real estate even before i had a car so to that extent i was very clear that that gives you security and then you can do what you want to but that kind of prioritization is genius 
buying a home before a car is genius i must say I, that i don't know if you tell anybody in in today's time they will laugh at you that i mean this is old generation obviously we are of old generation the car is the epitome of social status and if you can look away from that and buy a house first yeah i think it's genius if you ask me my view okay uh uh children how many kids do you have sorry i didn't i should have, have asked that you have, have one daughter yes. do you talk to her about money and importance of money and so she's too young at this point of time she's just 7 years old so to that extent 7 at that age girls can teach their fathers a lot i should know i've had to i have two daughters <laughs> <laughs> yeah should start soon before she starts teaching you about money okay we'll we'll move on but uh uh you you mentioned about your spouse right she's not uh, uh, she's not like uh, hung up on gold per se yeah, yeah. but uh, let's say she came to you and said hey how should i saved up whole bunch of money in the pandemic we didn't go all for the fancy vacations and all the meals and all that if she came to you and assuming you're not a fund manager for a moment and she said i have this 1 crore rupees lying around what should i do with it what would be your advice very difficult i can't think of anything else other than suggesting to invest in equity equity and thankfully she is in a profession which is uh, very very different and uh, i would say it counterbalances that that risk that are there in the uh, financial oh, that's world. nice yeah she is a maxillofacial surgeon so to that extent it's a completely different field wow. completely insulated from the economy in that sense wow. so so it works and think about the other advantage being there may not be a debate on valuations <laughs> absolutely <laughs> you have your way over there the only okay. debate would be i mean maybe we should have invested in something else we should have given higher returns etc but yeah. those discussions will always happen right always, always, always happen. grass is always greener on the other side yeah. yeah uh one question which i which if you're comfortable talking about your thoughts on giving away wealth i know you're young there's a long way to go but any thoughts you have at this moment yeah i think uh, uh, i mean i would say that in a certain way we are already doing it not giving away wealth but at least uh, creating wealth for our investors uh, yeah, i think uh, the mutual fund industry has made uh, even a 5000 rupees retail investor to participate in wealth creation which was going to be very very difficult for that kind of Uh, that level of investments otherwise so in a way yes we are helping uh, our investors to create wealth but yes at some point of time giving away one's personal wealth will also uh, come come in terms of uh, a thought process but at this point of time i would say that uh, i am still not in the phase that i can really think of giving away uh, my personal wealth Yeah, and I, and I appreciate your answer because it's typically something that comes a little later in life for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you know, Buffett was criticized for decades for not giving away money, but then one farm, one soup, <laughs> he settled. He wrote a twenty billion dollar check or whatever it was. I don't remember. Well, another thing is, uh, since all along I've done only investments. Every time you see money, it it seems like a raw material, right? Yeah. You want to use it in a way that you create something. the the question is what do you do with that is it comes later but i'm saying initially it's, material, yeah. it's always to make use of that and create something more and then think of what to do with that so that's how it works i guess okay before i go to my last two three questions i want to talk a few minutes about india sure. uh so you know india has had a start in 1991 92 
stalled. Uh, then we had the Vajpayee government and it started to stall. And then India's had these, uh, you know, a, a sputtering kind of uh, uh, growth, if you will. Uh, but in, at least in my, all these 20, 30 years of life as a professional, there seems to be the maximum conviction about India's prospects today as compared to ever before. So I'm, you know, I'm always picking myself and saying, what is different now? Why can't it again fall flat like it did in the past? So talk to us what, if you're, you're, you're all equity, so you're bullish on India, uh, talk to us about what gives you that conviction. What's different now? Uh, and what gives you the convic conviction that India could really make this its decade and come out really you know, wealthier at the other end? Dr. you mentioned that uh, we have seen a phase of high growth, then falling back a bit, and then coming back again. But I think while that is true, uh, but if you look at a 20, 30 year uh, uh, timeline, India has achieved a lot, right? Our economy has grown maybe 10 times or more in those 30 years. Our markets have gone up uh, quite a bit. Uh, if you look at uh, the kind of wealth that has got created through the markets, that has been very, very significant. So I would say rather than looking at every short phase, we need to see how India has progressed over a period of time and how can we progress from here on. So I think very, very uh, a strong roadmap, I would, I would say, for India, especially given the dislocation that has happened in the global trade and commerce, in the global geopolitics. And at the same time, I think we are also taking steps to correct some of the things where we were lacking vis-a-vis -vis, uh, globe, for example, the capabilities on the manufacturing side. While we have created a lot of capabilities on the outsourcing, especially IT outsourcing, uh, outsourcing uh, and uh, in the services sector, but in the manufacturing space, somehow we were unable to really make those strides. I think now it's a really a very, very uh, significant opportunity for India. One, I think the excesses that are that were there in the manufacturing segment post uh, GFC are kind of uh, getting uh, cleaned up, which means that for our own growth as well, we would require more investments coming in. At the same time, there is a space that is becoming vacant uh, where India can compete with uh, other nations. Yes, over a period of time, we have also uh, cleaned up some of the drawbacks that we had uh, either on some of the uh, cost side or on the taxation, etc. So I think now if we can uh, compete with the global world in terms of the quality, in terms of the logistics, in terms of the trust, I think uh, we can definitely build our manufacturing capabilities even for the, uh, even to cater to the world in that sense. And already there is a geopolitical situation where uh, the world is no more as confident as it was in the past to rely entirely on China, for example. You have Russia, Ukraine in the background. Uh, China, Taiwan have been aggressively posturing against each other. So in this context, oh, you could question that how many of the global uh, large corporations would still go to China and, and be dependent on the same source of supply, etc. The answer is they will start to look at alternative uh, sources. And uh, India definitely has a chance. I'm not saying that uh, we are the only ones and everything will come to us, but I think we have 
a significant opportunity lying ahead of us and we should be able to make use of that and also in terms of the portfolio flows for example india has always been a capital starved country and we rely on foreign capital for our growth which is very very critical now india has uh, has outperformed all other emerging nations on a us currency uh, nominated basis for last 20 30 years okay and consistently our weight in the emerging market basket has been going up so maybe 7 8 years back every 100 dollars that were coming into emerging market funds maybe about 6 dollars or 7 dollars used to come to our country now that has gone to about 14 and a half 15 dollars for every 100 assuming that the portfolio manager is neutral now in a situation where people are going to be less confident on global growth and the countries which are more dependent on global growth for example china taiwan korea etc are more export dependent than india so to that extent at least for the next foreseeable future seems like their growth is going to be more affected than our growth which is more resilient because of our domestic economy then naturally uh, you can expect some bit of an overweight i'm not saying that is going to happen next month next week etc but over a period of time india weight should not at least be lower than the benchmark weight in terms of the flows which means whenever the emerging markets flows start you will start to see maybe 15 dollars or more for every 100 dollars coming into the country and you look across the investment world most of the legendary investment investors and their funds have not had any exposure to india yet and we are becoming the engine for global growth as we speak and how far can they go in terms of ignoring our country so at some point of time all of this will culminate into more capital flows more growth and hopefully if there are no self goals i think we should be able to really uh, uh, get a a large chunk of uh, global trade and commerce then anyways there are various other pieces which continue to support our growth for example the resilient domestic economy the need for investment into infrastructure which continuously has been happening irrespective of which government comes to power i think it's irreversible right you will have to look at making investments into infrastructure and uh, that will keep uh, uh, aiding certain pockets of our economy the consumption which was one of the only areas where india was actually firing whereas other engines were kind of disrupted now we are entering a crucial phase right i mean we all know that whenever per capita in, uh, in, uh, income goes beyond the 3000 dollars range you will see a huge level of consumption we are seeing it in front of our, our our lifetime right how things have changed over the last 10 years and look at what could happen over the next 10 years when you actually move into the potential j j curve in terms of consumption demand and uh, anyways i mean we have uh, skill labor we have got uh, good telecom and, and other infrastructure uh, capabilities we have got uh, a large population which is conversant in english which is using mobile phones uh, i think the opportunities are are, are really immense for this uh, country it's just that uh, we have to keep our head down and keep doing things uh, that are supposed to be done and uh, not worry about the global volatility that's going to be there i mean tell me one year or one phase where there were no risks in the market or there were no issues in the global market those will keep coming keep going i mean 
you spoke about 1992 onwards we have seen many large crises uh, during that period right yeah despite all of that india as an economy as a country has grown quite significantly and i'm sure that uh, over the next 10 years also such kind of uh, transformational growth should continue to happen yes yeah. so i think we are all lucky to be part of this generation where we can be part of wealth creation as well as uh, 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 looking at uh, the kind of uh, the potential growth that you can see in the country you mentioned self goals i was going to ask you risk what what are using your word what what are the self goals that could happen or what are the external risks that could play in and india may not realize the potential that is so visible today you know i would say we are still a vulnerable country uh, for example uh, we are dependent on foreign capital uh, we are dependent on uh, commodities that come from abroad especially our energy supplies so if something goes wrong in the global context and it has repercussions on the uh, the costing then obviously that will put pressure on our uh, fiscal uh, side and it will it will curtail our uh, future investments into growth etc so definitely that remains a risk and then the policies right because in a democracy you you will always have consultations you will always have maybe two steps forward one step backward etc uh, so in that process if if something goes wrong and if you make policy errors then i think to correct them could take a lot of uh, time right i mean uh, look at the manufacturing space for example while we focused on it sector as a country uh, we probably uh, didn't do the uh, justice that we had to do on the manufacturing so and that has probably taken us back by a decade or more so you will realize some of these issues only over a period of time so that's where i think difficult to say what can become a risk but i am saying yes some of these policy issues could also be uh, risky areas in that sense okay fair point uh last set of questions what do you read and uh, how much time do you spend reading actually see our <laughs> work is all about reading analyzing uh, so all day Yeah. all day so it, it it goes on i don't think you can ever have a holiday where you can completely switch off or cut off from market so to that extent it, it it's a continuous one and all kinds of uh, information is useful i won't say that uh, i mean how it can help you in immediate portfolio construction you may not understand but definitely there is something that you will gain from understanding it will connect somewhere uh, yeah yeah what's happening in the world the only thing that i would say is uh, whenever you read um, a report or an analysis whether it's in the media or in the uh, broking reports or investment reports i think very uh, critical thing to make sure that you differentiate facts from analysis i think that's where you tend to get carried away by what's written in a report or what's coming in a news article you should take facts at face value but sometimes the analysis could be wrong or may not be complete i think that's where you need to have your own inputs and make sure that uh, the analysis is right otherwise i think uh, there is so much information all around and it's only increasing right so you could end up making a lot of uh, mistakes that's a very good point take the facts at face value the rest you be sure you you know you're reading someone's opinion don't yes. don't, yes. don't take it at face value they may have a bias uh can you name some publications that you that you think offer value and maybe people should read 
any international domestic publications? Yeah, I think all the uh, uh, information that comes on the financial markets are relevant for investors. For example, whether it is Economist, uh, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal on the international side, or some of the uh, business newspapers that we have in India. And these days, even if you are not subscribing to some of these newspapers, uh, you could get most of this information on the website online, right? Yeah. So to that extent, I think information has become easy to access. Uh, the critical part is how to use that information and what to decipher. Yep. Uh, any recommendations for what can help our readers become better wealth creators? And uh, what can they do to become better stock pickers? Apart from listening to this podcast and following the process, <laughs> anything else? I would say... Uh, three important tenets of investing are, or successful investing. Uh, one is regular investments. The early you start is better because you have a longer investment horizon. There is so much more that you can do in terms of compounding. Second is to have uh, asset allocation because while I mentioned about my asset allocation, that may not be suitable for all investors. I'm making that point very clear. But whatever is suitable to your risk appetite, uh, you should be uh, doing that. And uh, that is something that you have to keep monitoring at every point of time. And the third important tenet is uh, the long-term focus because uh, most of the decisions that you have taken with great due diligence also can go wrong in the short term. But as long as those uh, decisions are right and you, are, you have a long-term focus, uh, you tend to do well. I think uh, these are the three important uh, things to remember. Simple. Like they say, right? It's very simple, but not easy. So, no, yeah. most of these things are not uh, really easy. Very, very difficult to practice. I mean, simply people say that if you have to be successful in stocks, you buy low and sell high. But how do you do that? That's difficult, right? It's, it's always uh, about controlling greed and fear. And it's easier said than that. Okay. My final question to you, what is the one idea you would want to leave the listeners and the viewers with that they can think about in Malawa? No, I think uh, most of the viewers, I'm sure, have been investing into equities. And uh, for them, I think just to make sure that you remain for the long term and uh, not get swayed by what happens in the markets every now and then and keep your focus. And for those investors or potential investors who have not invested into equity, I think risk is there in every asset class. It's just about taking what is the right amount of risk uh, from your perspective. So don't completely avoid equities. Take as much as you can bear and uh, start small. And over a period of time, you will realize that if the volatility that you are worried about in terms of equities, it's only for the short-term investors. For the long-term investors, that volatility is actually a threat. And if you're making systematic investments, regular investments during that volatile period, you end up making a lot of wealth over a period of time. So I think make volatility your friend and keep looking uh, for investments uh, from a long-term perspective. Yeah, and just uh, just if I may add a point, think Dravid versus Sachin and don't definitely think like me about 1006s. So the, the, the stat, remember that. You want to be there. Yeah, if you want entertainment, there is uh, T20 and volleyball. There is T20. There you go. Otherwise, uh, I mean, there are uh, other ways. Yeah, of course. Harsha, many, many thanks for taking out the time on this Saturday morning. It's been a wonderful conversation. 
Thank you so much, Rahul. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investor Hour. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say about this episode or the podcast in general. Be sure to write to me at info at equitymaster.com. That's I-N-F-O at equitymaster.com. Thank you once again and see you at the next edition of the Investor Hour. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.